Hello, everyone. Welcome to Disrupt TV. My name is Vala Afshar, Chief Digital Evangelist at Salesforce and your co-host for the next hour. We welcome you to follow us on Twitter at Disrupt TV Show. You can send uh, myself, Cindy, and our distinguished guests your questions live using hashtag Disrupt TV, and we'll do our best to try to answer them live uh, on the show. If not, after the show, we'll get back to you for sure. We've had nearly 200 guests on Disrupt TV, so follow us and also check out our SoundCloud and iTunes podcasts. And you can also subscribe to Disrupt TV on our YouTube and Vimeo channels. Um, my co-host, uh, Ray Wong, is giving a keynote at, at this point, so we're delighted to have Cindy Zhou, the Vice President and Principal Analyst at Constellation Research. Uh, Cindy covers digital marketing transformation and sales effectiveness. Uh, she has advised Constellation and continues to advise Constellation clients on strategies to light up their demand generation, prove revenue contribution, and maximize their sales uh, productivity. She has over 18 years of practitioner experience in corporate marketing, product marketing, product management, and sales operations. She's also spearheaded marketing transformation in multiple technology companies. In fact, prior to joining Constellation, Cindy was a global senior vice president of marketing and sales operations at Back Office Associates. She's a must follow, not just for CMOs or digital marketeers, but just business leaders as a whole at Twitter at Cindy underscore Zo, C-I-N-D-Y underscore Z-H-O-U. Welcome, Cindy, to Disrupt TV. Hey, thanks so much, Vala. And it's my honor and pleasure to uh, be co-hosting with Vala Afshar, one of the must on Twitter. Uh, I know Jim Kramer from Mad Money says, you got to follow Vala Afshar. So definitely, it's my pleasure. And I know it's very hard to, to follow and uh, step in for Ray, but I will do my best. But I know I have such a great co-host to help me power through this hour. And of course, we have some phenomenal guests today. Who do we have today, Vala? Absolutely. My fear is you're going to be so good that Ray's going to bump me from the show. But anyway, we'll cover that after the show. <laughs> I don't do that. Our primary group of guests, our first guest is EJ Kenny, Senior Vice President and Global Head of Consumer Products at SAP. In his role, uh, EJ, as the Global Head of Consumer Products, is responsible for the strategic growth plans and solutions portfolio for consumer products, including the food, beverage, home, personal care, fashion, consumer durable segments, as well as the agribusiness sector across industries. So tremendous responsibility as a fantastic practitioner prior to joining SAP. You can follow EJ on Twitter at E-J-K-E-N-N-E-Y. Welcome EJ to Disrupt TV. Thank you very much. It's my pleasure to be with you. Thank you, sir. So Cindy, you go ahead. You start with the questions. Oh, well, thank you so much. Well, so EJ, you know, I, I love that your, uh, your title is GM of Consumer Products. And uh, I, I believe that SAP had taken a, uh, a study in consumer products all about Internet of Things and IoT adoption. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah, absolutely, Cindy. Thank you. Um, in how, we, uh, how we're organized in SAP, we go to market by industry. So uh, we're very uh, blessed to be able to commission various studies. And, and one of the things from talking to our customers is there, there seems to be a wide divide on how to approach the whole Internet of Things topic. And, um, and so we commissioned a study that, that goes across five global markets. Uh, and it was just under, I think, 176 uh, consumer products executives were interviewed Ooh. in depth about their, um, their plans, their current plans and their future plans around Internet of Things, uh, what solution areas to adopt, and, uh, and also what's their current level of maturity? Because we definitely wanted to learn what are the leaders doing in this space and what are the, what are the companies that, uh, that are uh, on the sidelines, that are taking more of a laggard position, and why are they taking that position? Interesting. Interesting. We, we, had, uh, we had a senior executive responsible for IoT practice at Cisco on our show about a month or so ago. Mm -hmm. And I was surprised they talked about 14,000 some odd customers that not, they were not, they had uh, implemented and are actively uh, creating new business models and managing uh, Internet of Things innovation and technologies. And uh, he also talked about the fact that it's not just wearables on the consumer side, but also on the business side. There was tremendous adoption and growth of IoT. So are there specific CP industry conditions that make uh, Internet of Things adoption a favorable course to pursue? 
Yeah, and, and I'm glad that we start uh, with the, the business context first, because um, when you look at consumer products, historically, it's been a relatively stable uh, industry that's been based upon building global brands, uh, economies of scale, uh, and, and being able to efficiently move products through retail. Well, that world has been flipped upside down. And when we think about digital technologies and what it's been doing to the market, uh, we've, we've seen that uh, consumer products companies are under significant margin pressure. They're under significant growth pressure. And they're seeing more and more competitors coming from all different spaces, whether it's retailers that are investing more into private label or small niche providers that are, uh, because of digital technologies, able to enter the market because those barriers to entry have really uh, dropped right. away. So right. we've seen, we've seen uh, more, or we anticipate seeing more in the next five years than the previous 50 in the areas of change. Wow. So there is a strong impotence to look at business models, to look at ways to get more efficient, to look at ways to get uh, engaged with consumers differently than how they're currently doing it today. Um, but there's a wide disconnect, and the study really indicates that, a wide disconnect between companies that are aggressively going into this space and those that um, that are taking more of a wait and see attitude. Um, and, and perhaps to, to your spot, uh, uh, to your question earlier, when you consider the consumer engagement piece and wearables and uh, connected homes and, and that sure. type of, that, that, that seems very kind of uh, intuitive that that's consumer products companies would want to engage there. But honestly, the the study reveals that in many of the countries, they're going after uh, more cost um, uh, cost and operational effectiveness based strategies focused on transportation, mm -hmm. on logistics, on warehousing, mm -hmm. and on, um, on on eliminating those sources of non value added waste in their in their value chain. They're applying IoT technologies there first, and um, and then we'll be migrating more to. Uh, uh, customer engagement type of uh, scenarios. Sure, sure. So Cindy and I last week we were at a Constellation Enterprise Connect conference, yep. and I was surprised the, the number of chief digital officers that were at the conference and sharing their, uh, you know, practice best experiences. So, what, who do you deal with mostly? Is it the person responsible for? Is it the CIO? Is it the chief digital or data officer? Does the CMO come to you? And say I'm interested in you know lightening up my awareness and, and new business model innovation capabilities with IoT. Which line of business is on the forefront of engaging with you and building an IoT practice? Well, it, it, and honestly, it it, it varies um, it varies widely. Certainly, I think the CIOs in many of the progressive consumer products companies they want to be at the center of this, yeah. uh, primarily because. Um, people in supply chain or leaders in CMOs and leaders in other lines of business, they're, they're not waiting. They're going out and they're doing proof of concepts. Yeah. And the challenge has been, there's, there's been some great examples of taking IOT technology and in uh, getting a very successful proof of concept that has a limited benefit. But the challenge is how do you operationalize that? How yeah. do you integrate the insights and in, in, in the, uh, uh, the insights that come from the exhaust of the transactions or uh, data that that uh, sensor is providing, how do you integrate that into your enterprise level uh, process? And there, the CIO needs to be involved in helping to provide a consistent platform to digest that data and make sense of it throughout the rest of the enterprise. But clearly, um, IoT strategies are focused on specific outcomes. I need to improve my margins. I need to improve my operational effectiveness. I need to I need to get greater insight on consumer behavior, consumer motivation, and that's where a lot of the consumer engagement uh, types of apps, uh, whether it's Under Armour uh, using its connected fitness uh, apps or or other uh, consumer engagement strategies, uh, so much of that is geared towards driving uh, the insights into mm -hmm. action around marketing and sales strategies. Yeah, and EJ, it's, it's interesting you mentioned, so I'll, I'll give you an example. I, I use a Domino's Pizza as an example of this all the time. You know, this is a company where in 2010, they really embarked upon a digital transformation strategy. And you look at, you know, they offer 13 different ways to order pizza. And much of it is IoT driven. You know, they now have Alexa powered pizza ordering. You can order off the Apple Watch. But they really did that with the basis of how can I improve the customer experience? And so you've seen this dramatic uptake in their stock price. 
2010, I remember looking at this and their stock price was around maybe $7.80. Let's call it sub $8. And two days ago, I checked, it's $183. Their growth, <laughs> yeah, their growth has outpaced. This is Bitcoin growth. This is right, exactly. And they've outpaced a lot of these technology companies. So I kind of think about, you know, the, the clients that SAP is working with and, you know, these dramatic results. I mean, is that coming into play on how they build their business cases? Oh, absolutely, especially, um, in, and I'm, I'm glad that you, uh, you highlighted the dominant situation because those, those companies that are focused around creating a new experience for consumers, um, when you think about, uh, as I mentioned, consumer products historically has been a, a manufacturer to, to retail, to retail, to consumer yeah. type of business. And we're seeing so many consumer products companies that are going consumer direct or I would say channelless business, right. not just uh, solely in, in one channel versus another. Mm -hmm. And the key thing there is understanding the consumer, understanding their needs and wants before they even materialize that in terms of uh, where they choose to spend their money. And um, when we look at the, all of the information that we have today indicates that consumers, they're looking for outcomes. They're looking for experiences. They're looking for their minds and hearts to be moved and influenced. Make, and do something for me. Make my life easier. Make yeah. my life more convenient. Make, help me make my life more healthy. Uh, help me to achieve joy in other aspects of my life. If you can do that, that has a better brand and, uh, and attachment uh, than, uh, than any kind of advertisement can, uh, can accomplish. And to do that, CP companies really need to have IoT or sensor strategies to be able to understand different elements of consumers that you wouldn't get through ordinary transaction-based uh, interactions. Sure, sure. Well, last couple of days, there's been uh, kind of a pizza NFL controversy <laughs> in the news in terms of uh, how the political climate may have affected pizza business, and yet the, the company that brought that to the surface that's experiencing flat to negative growth compared to Domino's, which I believe is 8% year-over-year growth. So companies who are leaning into technologies are absolutely, as you said, outpacing their competitors. But my question is, my, I suspect, EJ, you spend most of your time as an educator uh, trying to perhaps convince CP executives of the importance of emerging technologies with like AI and blockchain and IoT and so on and so forth, augmented and virtual reality and so on and so forth. So, how, how, how well versed are the CP executives when it comes to IoT and, and how involved do you and your team have to get in order to build a strong business case for them? Yeah, I, I think that they're, um, I say in general, they intuitively know the value that IoT can yeah. provide their business it, they, because the, the promise of IoT is giving them uh, information and, and automation in areas that they've long wanted to improve. Yeah, sure. so they intuitively know how, but they're concerned about, and especially this is where if, if companies take this POC type of approach in too limited of an experience, they're not learning from others. And mm -hmm. um, so they're asking us, yes, you're exactly right, there's some education involved, but really what they're asking is help us get in touch with those that have, have gone before us. Yeah. Help us understand what are what are strategies that I can I can not only take a limited impact of uh, what sensor information could provide. Let let me take that knowledge and information and integrate it through my enterprise process. Uh, I'll, I'll give you a great example. We worked with a, a beverage company, and their initial um, approach to IoT was to put inexpensive sensors in a cooler solely. And this may sound like a, a um, a simple business case, but it was solely so these coolers don't get stolen. They wanted to understand, <laughs> are they physically there? And then it, as they started working with us and we started working with them, we started to say, well, if, if we understand where they are, we understand how many times the door has been open, we can also put, uh, uh, put sensors on the, uh, on the cooler's uh, equipment to understand, well, when is that cooler going to fail? Are you maintaining a consistent temperature? because nothing is worse than buying ice cream that's been melted and then refrozen. So, um, you know, understanding- are I don't want to eat that. <laughs> oh, no, absolutely not. So is, is the product quality impacted? And then we're taking it to that next level saying, if I can understand how many times that door has been open and closed, I, mm -hmm. I know something about the demand. So sure. should, should I have a merchandiser or a, a DSD driver stop at that store today or not? 
so I can affect stock out. So it, it, it began with this, this belief of let me go in to try to improve a specific outcome. And then with, with taking more of an enterprise lens and, uh, and having a platform to digest uh, all of these signals and integrate it to my enterprise level process, I can do m many more things that I never frankly envisioned to do when I set out on, uh, on this journey. That's amazing. Yeah, and EJ, I'm even thinking about that example you just gave, you know, yes, there's uh, food services with refrigeration, but then it can also be very life-saving. Think about pharmaceutical companies, certain That's medications, cool. et cetera, they need to be refrigerated or at a certain temperature. Uh, so, you know, we can really even talk about a, a life-saving component. Yeah, you, you are absolutely right, as well as, um, you know, unfortunately, uh, especially in the, in the healthcare sector, there's a lot of fraudulent medicine. Um, right. So, you know, it, I think that there's a number of companies, both on the food, agribusiness, and also on the uh, life sciences side, that are trying to use sensors to provide trust and transparency. And when you think about, uh, especially we're all consumers, um, and, and we don't give out our trust to, to brands and, and companies very lightly. So if I can have transparency into where's my food from, it, you say that this, co this coffee is from uh, Colombia. Do I trust you? How can I, how can I, you can provide me visibility into the specific field that that uh, coffee was grown and that I want to have some assurance that it was done in a sustainable and um, in a way that doesn't use child labor and et cetera. Mm -hmm. So those are other scenarios going back in the value chain that uh, the uh, consumer products companies are very anxious to look at. EJ, are there country specific or geographical differences that either accelerate or decelerate uh, IoT adoption patterns? Uh, yeah, ab absolutely. When we look at the study, the, the, the five uh, major markets that were studied, uh, the US, uh, the United Kingdom, Germany, uh, India, and uh, Japan. And when we look at that, we did see, um, uh, in a broadly characterize, uh, the US was more focused on uh, consumer engagement and uh, mm -hmm. consumer uh, uh, types of IoT scenarios. When we look at the other four uh, countries, they were much more around uh, cost uh, reduction, speed to market, uh, more on uh, the logistics, transportation, product quality, and um, and and, um, and understanding the product quality characteristics throughout the value chain. So there were there were some differences, and I think that represents a maturity and also uh, the focus in the U.S. Uh, U.S. based, uh, especially multinationals, is so much on growth. And how can they use this as a, to create new business models and new ways to engage consumers? Makes sense. Are there, um, and I recall again, when we talked about that, there's a fair amount of complexity involved in terms of IoT deployments. Are there certain building blocks that, that should be in place before you embark on a journey of implementing wearables and sensors and beacons? Uh, throughout your ecosystem, and and a follow up to that, do you believe that the advancements in machine learning and AI will, and the combination of IoT will create a very compelling business uh, case for executives to really have both these technologies not just on their radar but begin to implement and and and, and experiment. Uh, and um, um, you you hit the nail on the head because I think that's the the fundamental. It's it's less about the specifics um, of IoT as uh, a standalone. It's more the combination of Internet of Things with machine learning, with blockchain, and yeah. with a platform that you can regulate and digest this as part of your enterprise system. Uh, too often, as I was pointing out earlier, companies have approached this as a standalone. Right. And um, we've seen that the leaders uh, in the market are really approaching this from an end-to-end -end process. So if they want to create new consumer outcomes or if they want to um, greatly enhance the product quality that they, or they want to deliver new services to consumers, they're looking at it as an end-to-end -end process. And it is that coming together of IoT um, uh, types of applications with machine learning on a, on a platform that's at the edge that you can regulate uh, the granularity, you can regulate the flow, and you can integrate the insights into your enterprise uh, system so that you can fulfill and, and really optimize the outcome. This platform is absolutely critical. And, um, 
And I think that it's, uh, it's something that is maturing uh, and it's something that is absolutely vital because you wanna have the machine learning uh, and algorithms uh, out on that edge processing on that platform so that you can draw insights and either bring in the aggregate insight or flow through in certain cases alerts or super granular information in order to make decisions differently. Absolutely. I, I completely agree with you. Thank, we could talk about this for the entire hour. We so, really can, yeah. You, uh, you, you, uh, as Ray would say, you've, you've crushed it uh, on, on our first segment. Uh, EJ uh, Keeney, Senior Vice President, Global Head of Consumer Products. Uh, a great follow on Twitter, at EJKENNEY. Thank you so much, EJ, for uh, your wonderful uh, thought leadership on Disrupt TV. Thank you, sir. Thank you very much. It was a pleasure. Thanks, EJ. Cindy, now you see why like this is the uh, Ray and I favorite time of the week. <laughs> Absolutely, I'm loving it too. I just learned a lot from uh, from EJ and what's going on in the world of IoT. I see it a lot in customer experience, but yeah. to, absolutely, he's right. There's a lot more involved with supply chain services. Love it. All right, we have our next guest, right? <laughs> we try to do our best on Disrupt TV to invite awesome CEOs on the show, and no exception here. So we have today with us Nia Samtai, uh, so, sorry, Sampat, uh, CEO of Built.io as, as our guest. Uh, Built.io's uh, mission is to fast-track innovation for its customers at the intersection of mobile and web and IoT. So. Uh, uh, a nice, uh, nice uh, set of discussions we'll have after our first guest. Uh, for more than 15 years of, with more than 15 years of uh, experience in the enterprise software, Nia has led product marketing, uh, cloud computing, online experience for companies like Sun Microsystems and VMware. You know, small companies. <laughs> She's a proponent of diversity and outspoken advocate for nurturing women leaders in her industry. Uh, as an acclaimed entrepreneur, Nia is, uh, can be found uh, appearing on keynote stages, on expert panel discussions with her experiences as an entrepreneur, as a female leader, and how Built.io is changing the world through automation. She was named San Francisco Business Times most influential woman in Bay Area business this year. San Francisco Business Times 40 Under 40. I shared a picture of a 40 Under 40 <laughs> on Twitter. I love that picture. Uh, yeah. 50 women in tech dominating Silicon Valley. Just think about that, dominating the epicenter of innovation. You can follow Nia on Twitter at N-E-H-A-S-F. Welcome to Disrupt TV. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks for, thanks for having me. I love the word domination. That's great. <laughs> I want to make great that discussion. someday. Uh, you know, even if it's in my little town, let alone Silicon Valley. <laughs> Here's not a little town, Bella, that's for sure. Well, Neha, it, it is such a pleasure to have you on the show. And maybe you can start off by telling our audience a bit more about Content Stack. Why did you start it? And what exactly is headless CMS? You know, CMS, not, not everyone in our uh, audience might know what that is, you know, the content management system. We can talk a little bit more about that. Sure, yeah. So um, the Content Stack product, product is one of our three products at Built.io. And it's one that I'm extra passionate about. So I came from a world of enterprises where it was actually pretty tough to get content changed on a website. And over time, content management systems became really bloated. You know, they tried to become all things yeah. web and added optimization for SEO and they added test and target types of things. And it became really hard to use. So you've got these business users that want to move really fast and they want to send content out. And now all of a sudden there's mobile applications that need content and smartwatches that need content and billboards. And so it just became really difficult for business people to manage content. They would file a ticket, wait for IT, it would take weeks to do. And um, out of essentially that headache, I was really passionate about solving the problem. So Content Stack solves that problem through this new concept of headless CMS. And headless CMS essentially means it's an API first content management system. So it's purely focused on delivering content through an API. So you want to do anything else with your CMS, all the other frills that usually come with a content management process, you do that through APIs. You integrate with the best of breed services that offer the best of breed localization, translation, SEO, all of those pieces. But the core layer of content is managed through this API through Content Stack. And so Headless CMS is, 
is essentially the future. If you think about the way content will be delivered, you think about content being delivered not just through the the pieces that we usually are using, you know, web, mobile, IoT, but even bigger. Think about IoT going to the visual web and billboards and screens being on every window and personalization of that. That's where the old CMS systems will no longer be able to play and headless CMS will take over. Wow, Neha, that, that is music to my ears because <laughs> I'll just tell you from living through this pain in the past, and Volley used to be a CMO too, I just remember, you know, some of, some of these CMS systems, you're, you're just, I mean, if you wanted to quickly make a change so that you have a localization for an event that you're doing in a particular town, just going through, and I won't name one of my old companies, but very bureaucratic, <laughs> It, it would literally take months and the event will be over at that point. So this this is music to my ears, particularly now we're so much more content driven in marketing. That's right. It's all about the visual. So that that's that's really interesting. Great. Yeah. So, so, yeah, and we just talked about an awful experience of waiting days, weeks, months to make frictionless process. But when we talk about customer experience, and a lot of times when we have executives, when we have CEOs, VCs, and we'll end with John analysts, customer experience bubbles up to a point where it feels like customer experience is the product. And, and, and it, it is really becoming the competitive differentiation, battleground for differentiation. So when you think about digital customer experience, and you're at the intersection of mobile and, and web and IoT, what are some yeah. trends that, 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 that you're seeing that should be on on, on the radar of every CMO or every chief customer experience officer in terms of their transformation journey. Yeah, absolutely. So I actually really like what, what EJ said about you have to understand the consumer. And the consumer can be the person that's downloading your app. It could be the customer at your enterprise. It could be the fan if you're a, a football team or a, a basketball team. It's really just understanding your consumer. And the biggest trend that we're seeing is that there's essentially all of this data, and this data exists to provide these experiences that are super personalized or very, very data rich, meaning that they're customized to your needs, right? So if you think about real-time experiences and personalization using data that people have access to, we're moving into this whole new era of what I like to call this opt-in economy, because it's the onus is on the developer or the person delivering the experience to use that data responsibly and use it in a way that actually adds enough value to the end user so that the end user opts in for that experience. So I'll give you an example of that. We work with a lot of sports teams and you think about the fan experience, right? What's the ultimate fan experience? So I'm a big fan of an NBA team and I wanna go to the, I wanna go watch the game and I wanna go in person and the, I use the, the app, the fan app as my remote control to the arena and to the game. And I'm approaching the arena and it's giving me navigation guidance. It may be helping me with parking. It may help me with ticket list entry into the arena. The app knows that I've arrived and it's now helping me find my way to my seat. It's giving me, a, based on my preferences, a glass of wine waiting for me when I arrive at my seat. You know, you get treated like a VIP and then you're interacting using all of these different IoT components that are happening in the back end. But as a fan, all I care about is if I tweet something and it shows up on the Jumbotron, I don't care how it happened. I just want to know that it happened and it feels good to me and I feel like I've, I'm having the experience of my life, right? And so that, those are the types of digital experiences that, that are now available with all these platforms and API-based technologies. And the combination of all these best of breed services in the back end allow us to create these beautiful experiences. But it also requires us to, up, to, to essentially provide experiences that are so awesome that the people that are attending will give us the data to make those experiences awesome. So we're entering this whole new, you know, data opt-in economy. No, Dan, uh, are, are, there, are, there, are there professional organizations like the NFL, NBA, NHL, MLB? Uh, can we experience what you just uh, referenced the use case today in, in any one of the major uh, teams? Yeah, you know, so the, the Sacramento Kings, which is, you know, of course, the California team uh, just built a, a $600 million brand new arena, which they're billing to be the most connected building on the planet. And you can go to the arena and use the Sacramento Kings app, their fan app, to be a remote control to the arena and experience a lot of what I just talked about. We had the owner of the Sacramento Kings on our show, and we talked about that. So that's awesome. That's a great example. That's great. great example. 
Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, even Golden State Warriors awesome. at our uh, CCE event last week, I had the former head of digital and VP of marketing, Kenny, was on my panel, and he talked about that too. It, it's that they have limited number of seats, you know. So, and of course, they're not they're not they're not uh, having a problem selling out the arena, but it really is about fan engagement and also something as basic as help me find a close by restroom that doesn't have a long line. Or how do Absolutely. I go to a concession, right? That to, to actually get get to food that uh, doesn't have a long line, so I don't have to miss the game. So absolutely, I, I agree with you there. And uh, just maybe get you know, just kind of shift gears and talk a little bit about leadership too, because Neha, I thought something was really interesting when we were doing research for um, uh, for this particular show is that you you started your company without external funding. And I feel like that there could be a lot of you know entrepreneurs and and want to be entrepreneurs that can learn from you there. Can you talk a little about that journey and and share some of the takeaways and your learnings with our audience? Yeah, absolutely. So, um, being in Silicon Valley, it's very unusual to be a company that has not raised capital, and um, and so we've sort of we've done things the opposite way. It's sort of like you put the, the horse before the cart, <laughs> right? The, the traditional way of running a business. And, and what, that, what that means is that you're really focused, laser focused on capital efficiency and making sure that you're delighting the customer so you can grow your customer base. And profitability and revenue matters more than everything else. And it creates this DNA inside the organization where everybody is like laser focused on the customer and non-customer success. And so that's essentially been, it, it shouldn't be a secret, but it's kind of the secret to being successful at building a, a product company without, it's just focusing on the customer 100% and making sure that they're successful. And what that also does is it creates the DNA of, you know, I actually care about selling and, and mm. ensuring that I'm selling in a way that the products are priced to be profitable for the company. And that ends up leading to a successful trajectory if we do raise funding down the road. Uh, but we're at 200 people, and it's our 10th year of operations. So um, it's been a it's been a very fun and interesting and challenging journey, but all led by making customers successful, essentially. That's terrific. Uh, having successful customers as your north star is always a great guiding principle. Um, we heard about your passion around wine. Uh, so can you tell us why you became a certified wine familiar? I mean, that's pretty, pretty awesome. <laughs> yeah, no, thank you. I, so I studied in, um, so my, a secret, another secret is I don't have an engineering background. I'm running a 200 person engineering firm, which is um, pretty fascinating. But my, my uh, um, undergrad degree was actually in French. And so I studied abroad in France. And I was 19, yeah. <laughs> 19 years old and fell in love with the world of wine and, um, and came back and, you know, went back to my regular life and got a real job and all that good stuff. But fast forward to early in my career when I was able to kind of take on this project of passion and study wine. And I, I became very systemic in how I took things on. So, you know, the certified sommelier exam and that whole certification process gave me the structure that I was craving in order to really take my hobby to the next level. And so that's, that's really why I did it. It was more for passion than anything else. But what I didn't know at the time was that it was going to end up being a really important tool from a business perspective. And, um, I'll, you know, just in general, uh, being a female non-engineer, in tech has been yeah. has been, has been I, super, I was gonna ask you about that. Yeah. It's been a it's been super interesting. And you know what we do, like we if you're in this position, you're constantly fighting for a level playing field, right? You're you don't necessarily want to be treated favorably. You just want to be treated fairly, right? So uh, what what wine has done and just my knowledge of wine has done, uh, which I you know had not really anticipated was it's given me a seat at the table where I traditionally may not have been invited, right? The the uh, the discussions that happen late at night, or the opportunities to present in front of a panel of people because I know there's something about wine. Where typically it's been my male counterparts that have done those types of roles. So it's actually ended up being a really great business tool and also an opportunity to share a glass of wine with someone that you're considering doing business with. And if you enjoy that time and if you can have a meaningful conversation over a glass of wine, it usually means that you can probably do business together. So it's been a great tool in, in general and it's, uh, and it's fun. <laughs> you know, Bala, I don't play golf and now I'm thinking, 
That's right. I need to do both. I need to do both. Um, well, I'll tell you what, I, I, try, I tried some golf lessons. It wasn't very good. So I, I think I chose the right path. <laughs> I was told once I had potential based on my swing, but I never continued. Oh, very nice. We, we all have potential. <laughs> we all have potential, exactly. That was that person being kind. <laughs> so, so any advice to any advice to um, uh, young female entrepreneurs uh, that could be in, in colleges, universities, or even uh, potential uh, startup founders today that are trying to grow their businesses? It, so, what I heard, you know, obviously grit, passion, determination. What else can you share with us? I think there's a few things. So one thing that girls tend to do, especially early in their careers, is they question themselves a lot. You know, the the sort of imposter syndrome thing, like I don't really belong here. And it's because you're influenced by what you're, what's around you. The first thing I would say, and, I, and this is something I, if I could go back to my 20 year old self, I would also say, don't question yourself so much. Like if you if you know what you're talking about, speak up. You know, if, not to use the term lean in, but really you lean into the conversation, be a part of it, and and kind of take a leadership role. And then I think I, where I've been very lucky is I've I've managed to create a group of people around me that are my champions. You know, and they they've always sort of pushed me to take things to the next level. And so surround yourself with champions and and really just fight for that level playing field. We, we're all doing it and it's, it's a growing, it's a growing, a, a, you know, awareness that that's happening around, uh, around women and, and gender equality and just um, be a part of that movement. So we, we had Whitney Johnson on our show and she talked, she's an author of a book called Disrupt Yourself. She's a venture capitalist and now uh, on the Thinkers 50 uh, most influential management think, uh, thinkers in the world. And she made a distinction between having a, uh, a mentor and a sponsor. And she said that for her, a sponsor, a person that has the authority and ability to use their political capital to help promote and accelerate and, and, and sponsor uh, uh, executives, men or women. Have you, uh, so when you say champion, thinking of, of it in terms of a sponsor or just someone who is a domain subject matter expert and is motivating to have you stretch more and have bigger, uh, more audacious goals? Yeah, you know, it's, it's both. And, and it just, in, and as you're, um, as you're going through various walks of life, it changes, it evolves. And so I've actually looked at it as, as like, you know, your company has a board of directors or a board of advisors. I actually look at it as a personal board of directors. So I have a group of people and it evolves like sometimes those people will stay in that position for a very long time and sometimes they're there when you need them you know maybe early in your career or when you're trying to grow a billion dollar company those are different people right so you you create this board of directors that has a invest a vested interest in you either because they're a really close friend or they're an investor or they are a long-term mentor um, in in making you successful and you lean on them a lot Oh, well, thank you, Val. I appreciate it. Neha, you know, we just uh, love to kind of close out with kind of your, your vision on trends. You know, what do you think is going to happen in the digital content space? What do you think is to come? Yeah, absolutely. So some of it actually EJ touched on with you guys earlier, but um, when you think about the different ways that content will be consumed, things are changing very fast, right? And so one of the big pieces is this whole idea of augmented reality and virtual reality. And we're starting to see a lot of those use cases now, but I, but I think it will become more and more pervasive, especially in retail and e-commerce. You know, you should be able to go to a website or in an app and figure out if a chair looks good in a room or if a, you know, a pair of sunglasses will look good on your face. And that's, I mean, those are really simple and easy use cases, but they're gonna expand pretty extensively into the world of retail and e-commerce. That, that's a trend that is, is already here, but will be growing significantly. I also think we talked a little bit about machine learning and AI, and that's another piece that, you know, is, is it's well on its way. Data is the new currency, as they say. But, or the new bacon. The, I, <laughs> I saw that. a t-shirt with that. <laughs> <laughs> but, but, you know, the piece that I still will emphasize is that we're moving into a world in which the opt-in economy is going to be important. So data is the currency, but the currency is owned by end users, by consumers. 
And the consumers are going to have to be willing to give you access to that data. And it's people are going to become much more aware of when they're opting into an experience. So I think that's going to drive a lot of trends. It's going to put the onus and the responsibility on developers to be responsible on how they're using data and to declare what they're doing with data and creating that trust with their end users in order to continue to innovate. That's another big piece that we see happening. Yeah, absolutely. With GDPR coming too, I feel like what you were just talking about, digital privacy and security, it, it's going to be even a bigger topic because uh, these fines are incredibly steep. Absolutely. Yep, absolutely. We hope you come back. You are yes. fantastic. Thank uh, you. Really, really amazing, amazing thought leadership. Nia Sampat, CEO of Built.io. You can follow Nia at N-E-H-A-S-F on Twitter. Again, please, I hope you come back. Thank you so much. Have a great weekend. Thanks, guys. Thank, Thank you, Neha. Wow. All right. <laughs> I already know of a lot of marketers are going to need their solution because they don't want to have to wait three months to get something updated on the website. Some great stories as a former CMO trying to update all our digital assets across multiple channels. And uh, yeah, it wasn't easy. It wasn't easy. Um, so, okay, so this is the what we call Cindy our cleanup hitter spot. We have our future first ballot Hall of Fame to Disrupt TV inductee, John Reed, as our last guest. Woo! He's the co-founder of Diginomica. I love the board behind his uh, behind behind him with all the Twitter handles. I'm sure to pick up an extra hundred followers. Thank you, John. <laughs> yes, thank you, John, for helping out. <laughs> John is the co-founder of Diginomica.com, which examines the digital enterprise from the vantage point of real-world use cases. Some of the best uh, uh, content you can find in the enterprise is on the Digital Oracle website and Twitter stream. He's a, he's a, a fantastic blogger and analyst. He writes, uh, he, he produces video casts on enterprise trends. He's a member of the Enterprise Irregular, so that's another place you can go to find John's work. It, it, it's obviously, if for those of you know, an influential group of enterprise bloggers and practitioners. He uh, advocates media over marketing. He sees Diginomica as a chance to disrupt the tech media and uh, BS wary enterprise reader in mind. Really a straight shooter, as you'll find out in the next uh, 20 minutes. He tries not to word disruption. He tries not to use the word disruption, but he's okay with coming on shows that have disrupt on the title. So <laughs> uh, he's a fantastic follow on Twitter at J O N E R P. J O N E R P. Welcome, John, to Disrupt TV. Thank you, Bala. The uh, check's in the mail, buddy. Thanks. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I had to cut down was, your bio, my friend. You, that you've was done a lot. That was quite an intro. That was quite an intro. Thank John you. Yeah, yeah, I was running to him, and he's always so fun to chat with. Yeah, uh, the, the chats were all too short at Connected Enterprise. That went like a blur. Uh, but that, that was really an excellent event. So. It was a blur, and I see behind you, you said you survived the Connected Enterprise 17. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> oh, hey, there you go. I, I, was so, a, so, I was a luxury inmate at Half Moon Bay. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Not nice. a bad place. So Cindy no. and Ray definitely know how to throw a, throw a conference. Um, Indeed. But, but let's do your – I like I like your, uh, let's call it David Letterman, list of – Yeah. You know, what you found interesting and noteworthy at uh, CCP. Right, so I've got I've got a top seven uh, list seven. of things, things I learned. Oh, not a top ten, but top seven. Uh, okay. Although there are there are a couple of bonuses that are they don't have numbers, so we might end up. But awesome. just awesome. like just like Letterman, you, you probably noticed back in the heyday, they weren't really in order priority. You know what I mean? So these aren't really prioritized. Like it's not like number one is more important. They're just it is what it is. Sure. Uh, but let's rifle through them, and you guys can also chime in, and we'll see where we are. Uh, number seven, AI is practical. And uh, I think the thing that jumped out at me from the AI discussions we were having is that, um, I mean, look, I mean, we can get into these really complicated, like, intense debates about whether AI is going to take us into a utopia where mm -hmm. humans chase their talents unburdened by administrivia, uh, versus a jobless utopia uh, of, of of no work and suffering, but but the real action right now is learning how to work with machines and automate repetitive stuff in the, in the here and now. Uh, at a recent event uh, at Sage Intact, 
one of the AI speakers talked about the goal of taking the robot out of the human, which I thought was really interesting. And, uh, and, and that being kind of a way of also provoking humans to think about, well, what's going to happen to you? And at the recent Tableau show I was at, that, that was sort of front and center because one of the big things for data analysts is, you know, are you going to become irrelevant um, by these machines that are perhaps better at sort of, uh, you know, pushing through data than you are? And this, I interviewed the CPO of Tableau, and we I actually posted this article on Digitonomica and Many of these things are referenced on Diginomica, and I'm not trying to push the site, but if you really want to read about them, you can go there too. Um, but he outlined a three-point plan for data analysts in the face of AI. And the three points were embrace technology change, uh, don't fear it, embrace it, know your industry. In other words, be a master of your domain. So if you're in supply chain, understand the impact of automation on supply chain etc. And then the third was master the aggregate view and help refine the algorithm. So in other words, step it up a level and learn how to add value, being able to see across the transactions and the patterns, and then help refine the algorithms. And I might add that there's an ethical component to that as well, which is that algorithms often do end up incorporating bias or uh, in some cases, real inconvenience to the end user uh, or, or perhaps not even in the HR sense, perhaps not looking at the right applicants. So as as we enter further in our work with machines, we also think about how we can influence machines to do their jobs better. So I thought that was interesting, and there was tons of conversations about that at Connected Enterprise, so obviously got a place on my list. John, do you think there's a disconnect between the domain expert that you just mentioned, the business domain expert, and the guy or gal that's producing the algorithm in terms of creating a sophisticated practical workflow that requires not just the data science, I know R, I know how to measure accuracy with K-fold, I know machine learning, versus I know supply chain, I know customer service and support, I understand headless CMS and the impact. And, and so bringing line of business domain experts and really working closely with the mad scientists, or not so much mad scientists, the mathematicians, <laughs> and, and so you can create robust enough algorithms that actually deliver value to the end user customer. Uh, so you're asking me if there's disconnects and silos in the enterprise. <laughs> I'm going to say, I'm going to say, I'm going to say big yes to that. <laughs> and and un unfortunately that's a reality in a lot of companies today yeah. and you're, and you're hundred percent right. And, and that's why ultimately the technology ends up letting us down. Uh, and, and, but it's not the technology, right? It's us. It's, it's the right. fact that, and, and, you know, I've been kind of been, been on this, you know, evangelical pitch for a long time now that people probably get sick of. But I talk about how business people need to meet technologists in the center and how technologists need to meet business in the center. And, and what you're going to find is that if, you, if, you, if you're unable to do that culturally and from a process standpoint, then all the new technology we're talking about now is just going to end up perpetuating inequality and inefficiency. And it's not going to work. So, you know, it is what it is. Um, so shall we go on to number six? Number six, Please. blockchain is debatable. Uh, <laughs> that was that was a lot of debate at CC. <laughs> there, there is nothing like blockchain to stir the pot and get people really, really worked up. And and one of the reasons for that is that blockchain has its ties in kind of a cryptocurrency utopianism around kind of taking down the financial oligarchs and reinventing culture and society. And I think people become very disappointed when when it just when when it's all reduced to another payment option on, on an e-commerce screen, right? So um, we ran into this a lot at, at the panels at Constellation, which were really intense. One panelist said at one point, "I'm not interested in helping companies fix problems. I'm interested in building next generation companies." I just totally remember that. Yeah. Which is a, which mm -hmm. is a really provocative statement, and then um, eventually went on to call. BS uh, on, the uh, on, on the notion of, of corporate sponsorships in blockchain, right? So, um, and, and by BS, I'm not, I'm, I'm sugarcoating it. It was a little more profane than that. <laughs> but, but the point being like that, that not this person didn't want to see the, the perpetuation of, of, of corporate uh, vendor lock-in in, in a new space. So you get into all this debate around that stuff. And we had, I just did a piece um, for Diginomica about that where I interviewed someone on one of those panels who was the executive director of Hyperledger, Brian Bellendorf. And, and the significance of Hyperledger is it's one of the main uh, 
organizations in pursuit of enterprise blockchains, right? Because there's a whole bunch of work that has to be done to, to get blockchains ready for sort of enterprise level work. And Hyperledger is one of the more promising uh, ventures along those lines. But of course they have a lot of corporate backers, everything from everyone from Oracle to SAP and IBM's been very heavily involved. And so uh, he felt the need, uh, Brian, in, in my interview to respond to those things because the panel got cut short before he really had a chance to address it. But the point being, like his his view is that with the Apache license that, that he makes available, vendor lock-in is a lot harder to achieve. But the point is that there's a lot of debate around that. And and one, I, one very interesting thing that I touched on in the piece is, are we getting ready towards moving past pilot projects, which we hear a ton about still, towards actually wider scale, live production ready uh, blockchain projects in the enterprise? And Brian estimates he thinks are around 100 live projects in the world, but he acknowledged many of them are still in a pilot phase overall. One very interesting thing is the Diamond Ledger blockchain uh, is set to is set to go live in production early next year at the latest. And that's very interesting because that's gonna ideally help prevent blood diamonds from entering the market. And some big yeah. player big players are involved yeah. with, with that like IBM and SAP. And and Brian kind of closed this out with an interesting quote. He's that made the audience laugh, so I'll share it here. He said, "There is a tendency to talk about blockchain in very singular, reverential, almost religious tones. This is more than a distributed database, but this is less than holy water. This is somewhere in between the two. And I thought that was a, I thought that was a pretty good way of putting where we're at there. But but it was it was some really good debates that were had on this topic. So well, but don't so, where are you at it? Holy water, but yeah, yeah. yeah. Go ahead, sorry." Oh no, no worry. I was just saying, John. So, what do you think? What's your, what is? Do you believe that it's hype, or do you think that it's about to hit mainstream? And before uh, John and before John answers, I just want to let you know, Bitcoin crossed seven thousand dollars yesterday. Go ahead. Yeah, and, <laughs> and and if we had all bought a thousand bucks worth of Bitcoin in two thousand eleven, we wouldn't be on the show today. We'd be on an island. <laughs> you, you're absolutely right. That is it was a dollar in 2011, so that's a thousand yeah. bitcoins. <laughs> so we need to do a little more self-disrupting in the future, I think. But anyway, uh, to, to answer your question, Cindy, I, 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 I hope this doesn't sound too unglamorous, but the answer, I think, is somewhere in the middle. I think, I think blockchain is going to have use cases. It's going to be the kind of thing where when you're looking at different kind of problems that you're trying to solve, uh, before too long, blockchain is going to be one of the tools you might look at to solve those problems. And it might have to do with validating certain, kind, certain kinds of assets or creating a new kinds of network marketplace, or, or it might be a, a security feature that you want to implement or identity. It's going to be a tool in the toolkit. But but there are some people, let's face it, who are talking about blockchain as, as like revolutionizing the enterprise. I've heard it said that blockchain is the next most important thing after the internet. And I I, I'm not buying it. It's a very long thing. We'd have to have a whole hour on it, but it has to do with how much like uh, regulatory change is involved here. This is really different than AI. I mean, maybe you could argue that AI should have more regulation. I mean, that's why all these big tech companies are being hauled in front of Congress right now. Uh, but 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 on the blockchain standpoint, there's a bunch of regulatory hurdles and a bunch of cultural technology and process hurdles. I, I don't see it. I, I think you. I, I said in my most recent piece that the. AI and machine learning sort of get the honor of the next big thing. I don't think you would give that to blockchain, but blockchain, I think, is far from irrelevant either. And and so, you know, the the piece I wrote on whether blockchain's enterprise ready, you can check that out to see more details because I just put that up two days ago. So, well, yeah. I, I talked to a chief digital uh, officer who's trying to in a, in a, in the in the advertisement industry, ad ad industry, media industry, and uh, the CDO is trying to implement a blockchain project, but when you dig in and you realize that you know 98% of the ad spend on digital is Google and Facebook and if those two are not participating in blockchain right. you're gonna the entire capability to appease 2% of your stakeholders yeah. um, so so anyway so there's yeah there's business model and and it's a it, it, you need to have a stakeholder buy-in at scale right. to be able to implement and realize the the you know the, the the elimination of the let's say man in the middle uh, promise of blockchain. So, right. so it's hard. It's hard. It's hard work for me. Okay, let's press on. So here's your bonus one. Uh, live panels are for keeps. Uh, so there's no there's no five second delay. Uh, we, we heard uh, something on one of the uh, stages that I, I can't unfortunately I can't repeat on the show, but I'll just say that I don't think the attendees will ever forget what was said. 
Um, and since we're live right now, we should maybe all ponder the difference between sharing frank views versus maybe totally unfiltered moments of psychotherapeutic confessionals. Um, <laughs> but anyhow, I thought that was that was interesting because that's what makes live events fascinating, right? Is that people say stuff and you're like, wow, did you just hear what that person said? I, yeah, and then they exactly. repeat it, and they repeat it, and you're like, oh my God, he did say that. <laughs> exactly. And that was not AI-driven, right? <laughs> no, it, it was not. Okay, so let's move on because we don't have a lot of time. I'll try to breeze through. Number five is being a change, change agent isn't as sexy as it sounds. Hmm. And that comes directly from uh, some of the discussions. But in particular, you guys had an excellent panel on lessons learned from your BT-150 leaders, which is a constellation project that's identified 150 uh, executive leaders in digital transformation. Um, the tech's getting better and better, and so are the implementation methods. It's the people in and culture that are the hard part. And yeah. uh, one of the panelists, uh, Ben Haynes, who's this SVP and CIO of awesome guy. Oath, uh, he, he made a couple of really good points here talking about this because I don't want to just leave it some like, this is hard. He said the real lesson is most people don't want to change and it's really tough right now. Um, but you try to get 10% of the organization behind you first to build momentum before you think about the rest, which I thought was a really good point. And then he also said the second biggest thing is don't you can't make trans transformation just one group's responsibility. Um, he had set up a, a smaller transformation group, and then he really struggled with that, and he found like kind of a big divide, and he says you have to really get it. Uh, through the whole organization. Um, and and by the way, on that topic, sort of, I did a podcast live at Constellation with the team ability team that get into the art and science of team building. So if you want to search out my Busting the Omni Channel podcast or check my Twitter feed, you can see a link to it. But we got into more of that thing around, you have to do this with teams, not with individual rock stars conquering the world, right? Yeah, and John, to, to just kind of piggyback off of what you mentioned, we did a digital transformation survey study at Constellation. It was really uh, led by Chris Kanarakis and Courtney Sato. And it basically came out that 29% of digital transformation projects are really being led and backed by the CEO. So right. I really agree with, with the, the panelists and what you just mentioned. It just it has to start from the top. You know, not just one small group, like you're the transformation group and no one else gets behind you. It, it's going to fail. All right. So I will try to breeze through these because I know we're on the clock here. No, no, go ahead. Go ahead. You're great. Go, go. Yeah. My, bon my other bonus one is bingo. I got a bingo when, when Ray Wong said infinite ambient orchestration. I was just about done with my bingo card. <laughs> <laughs> and, and infinite inf ambient orchestration. Yeah. So yeah, I, this is when you need 280 characters for Twitter because uh, that hashtag would be 140. <laughs> I don't know what it is. I just know that I want me some of that. I could use more of that in my life. So hat tip to Ray and I, I won the bingo too. So that was super cool. Um, number four is candor is radical. And this is my riff on the keynote by Kim Scott on radical candor. Um, I thought um, her, radical candor is fairly straightforward principle is it has to do with that you want to show your employees that you really care about them and their growth, but also challenge them constantly and, and, and not be afraid of those conversations. And uh, I thought the QA was fascinating because someone belly ached about the challenge of dealing with millennials. I won't go into that now because that's complicated. But then there was also a thing around women and 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 how do women deal with this? Because when women start being frank and 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 forthcoming in the enterprise setting, a lot of times they get labeled as it's just not the same between how men and women communicate. And I thought Kim had some really good answers to that. And the bottom line is that you can't be afraid of being called some names. You have to speak the truth and speak your mind, and and that is what it is. But we do need to support women in those efforts to be more frank in, in their roles without being stigmatized by that. So that's that. Uh, number th number three is uh, the open source enterprises for real. I, I don't have time in our limited time we have left to get into that too much, but I wrote a piece on Diginomica about Mapbox and kind of how they, it, it, in, in this case, it's both for startups and for companies. For companies, it's about doing things at efficiency and scale, and I think for startups, it's also about punching above your weight. Mapbox has something like 800,000 registered users that are helping build out their location platform because they've open sourced everything. So mm -hmm. it's globalized maps, it's augmented reality, you might want to check that out. Uh, number two, uh, which is really important and it ties into our conversation today, security has last bat. Yeah. Uh, we have to talk about security because all these things we're talking about today have to do with data. And yeah. you can't talk about data without talking about how to secure it. And 
and that means two things to me. One is that even when you're in the early stages, you have to bring in the design phase, you have to bring security into the conversation from the beginning. But then one of your panelists made a really terrific point. Um, and it was, uh, let me just get, get her name so I make sure I pronounce it right. It was Cheng Zi Wang. Uh, it was on your security requirements in AI panel. And she made the point that just applying one patch consumes a massive amount of IT resources. And she was obviously referring to the disastrous Equifax situation where one unpatched thing, it sounds simple, but it's not simple for enterprises to keep up with their patches. And that's why we're gonna need automation and things like that. And so we have to reattack security from an automation uh, standpoint as well. Um, and, and, and I just want to say that some vendors are really reluctant to talk about security. I was um, talking to one vendor about their IoT keynote and they said they didn't want to bring up security during the IoT keynote because they didn't want to invite hackers to challenge their systems. And I was like, I'm sorry, but that's not a reasonable objection to this issue. You have to be able to discuss it. It's not sure you don't want to go on stage and dare people to hack your system, but there's there's a middle ground here where security always has to be part of the conversation. I thought you guys did a good job of that today, but that was also a, a nice thing on the Connected Enterprise event that we also covered that. And the last one is I'm super I'm fast. Out. The last one is super fast and highly appropriate. When the music starts, you're done. <laughs> And uh, so, so if you're going over on a panel at, at Connected Enterprise, the music starts playing. And I was going to start playing some music right now, but I don't want to get you guys in trouble for copyright reasons, so I can't do that. But when you're done, you're done. And vendors need to pay attention to that. And I'm not going to like point fingers at Salesforce because I know that the Dreamforce keynotes aren't going to run over at all next week, so that won't be an issue. But only thing I would say is respect your attendees' time because if you if your solutions are simple and easy to use, then how can you justify bloated and complex keynotes? I'd really like to understand that. And if you want to get into that with me, just do a keyword search on Enterprise Keynote Survival Guide, and you can see more of my thoughts on that. John, and I that's just want I want to know. I love we, it. Can we get a top seven for Dreamforce and have you back so you can share exactly in the same format regarding Dreamforce. Would you do that? I don't see why not. Awesome. Awesome. So so it'd be I'm, I'm telling you, you're one of my favorite guests. And, and after, uh, I don't know, 84 episodes, you're not going to see me ever say that in the past. So okay. definitely want you to come back and give us uh, give us your uh, your uh, your your view of, of Dreamforce. Uh, Cindy, your last thoughts before uh, before we end the show. Oh, I, I think you know John has to come back to do the top seven or top ten Dreamforce because uh, I'm sure we're going to have so much more fun with that. And and really, I uh, I feel like uh, I couldn't do Ray justice today. But uh, definitely, it's been so fun co-hosting with you today, Vala. I didn't give Vala's hash uh, his uh, Twitter handle, which John has on his board. So make sure you there we go. You, uh, follow Vala. Check it out, folks. I love that. I'm going to pick up more followers. It's great. John, you were amazing. John is a must follow on blogs, on web, and certainly on Twitter at J-O-N-E-R-P. Look forward to having you back so we can dissect and learn from you in terms of how we can have next year's Dreamforce. Uh, lessons learned from John Reed. So thank you so much and uh, have, a great, have a great weekend. Sounds good. Later. Thank you, sir. Thank you. All right. And uh, we're going to skip next week. Uh, Cindy, we're not going to have a show because of Dreamforce, uh, but we'll, yes. we'll come back the following week uh, with Bruce Cleveland, Wildcat Ventures, to discuss a new framework and shift in terms of how startups can overcome the traction gap. And Bruce Cleveland is a, is a, is a Hall of Fame VC, so we're going to learn quite a bit there. Leslie Berlin, author of Troublemakers, How Silicon Valley Came of Age. So you're going to have an incredible best-selling author talking to us about that. And we'll have Steve Wilson, Vice President and Principal Analyst covering digital safety, privacy to talk about blockchain. So we're going to debate blockchain as John gave us the permission to do so. And my thoughts regarding you, Cindy, it's unlikely I'm going to continue to be the co-host of Disrupt TV because of how well you did. So I hope Ray doesn't watch the episode. That's my, that's my wish. <laughs> Well, Vala, I look forward to seeing you at Dreamforce this week because I've, I'm all ready to go. I've got my sneakers. I've got my Apple Watch. I'm going to be running between five different hotels and, and Moscone, so hopefully I'll get to see you, you know, in passing in one of these places, I'm sure. Absolutely. absolutely. But thank you I, for having me. I, I, I will be looking to, for you so we can connect. And thanks again for just doing an amazing job. And uh, you do have um, – 
a, a research report that you just recently pu uh, published. Do you want to talk 30 seconds about that? Because we want to have you come on the show uh, and discuss your recent research. Oh, thanks so much, Vala. So yeah, I, I really have this mission of trying to help marketers. And you know, we just talked earlier about GDPR, which is the General Data Protection Regulation that was enacted over in Europe last year, but it goes into effect May 25th of 2018. A lot of marketers and CMOs I'm talking to that even know about it are very, very concerned. And so it really isn't about so much my rapport. I did put in a lot of ideas and et cetera, but more importantly, I went out to security experts. I went out to the marketing community, Salesforce included, to contribute a tip, an idea, a best practice. And so it really is meant to be helpful to marketers. And I hope that marketers have a chance to take a look at it and to share your feedback and comments with me. And I hope it's helpful and, and help them prepare for GDPR. Awesome. Ray and I are going to have you on the show so we can learn more about it. Thank you so Thank much. You. Have a great weekend. And if it's Friday, it's Disrupt TV. Thank you all for watching. And, uh, have a good week. Bye, everyone. Thank you, audience. Thanks. Thanks a lot.